Hello, you are listening to the Scouted Football Podcast with me, Joe Donoghue. Uh, another club-specific episode for you today, but first, a little recap of the Under-21 European Championships, which we started for the knockout rounds a matter of days ago. Uh, we had a last-minute Myron Boadu goal to seal passage to the semis for the Netherlands, knocking out a star-studded France side in the process. Um, Germany went through on penalties, um, beating Denmark in that quarter-final after a 2-2 draw after extra time. Uh, but the tie of the round, though, was unquestionably Portugal 5, Italy 3. Um, so close to being a repeat of the 2018 Under-19 Euros final, which finished 4-3 in Portugal's favour. Um, there were some quite interesting parallels between that game. Uh, Gianluca Scamacca and, and Jota both scored in each fixture. Um, Florentino Luis played in both and Davide Fratesi did as well. So that, that was quite nice to see. Uh, and meanwhile, Spain required extra time and, and Javi Poado's intervention to get past Croatia, who had, of course, knocked out England in the group stage. Um, without further ado, though, time to introduce today's guest for our club-specific pod, uh, and that is none other than the returning Alex Stewart of TIFO and The Athletic. Um, Alex, a joy to have you back on. How are things on Planet TIFO? Oh, it's lovely to be back. Um, yeah, things on Planet TIFO are exciting. So we've got, um, we launched TIFO IRL, uh, our new channel, um, well, I don't know when this is going out, but let's say within the last fortnight, that's sufficiently vague to, to cover it. <laughs> um, and at the moment, that's uh, me and JJ Bull, um, our new sensible transfer in from The Telegraph, uh, presenting tactical videos. We've got a really lovely uh, big screen that we can move the dots and arrows around on. Um, obviously at the moment it's predominantly Euro stuff. Uh, JJ did a really good breakdown of the Champions League final as well. Um, and there will be plenty of stuff during the Euros where we're doing quick time reactions to things, explaining bits and pieces of what's happened, looking at upcoming fixtures and trying to explain where teams might, you know, do well against each other, that kind of thing. Um, so yeah, it's really, it's really exciting. It's going well. Yeah, it looks like fun, fun stuff to be getting on with. Uh, and and one thing that I do have to ask straight off the bat is that in, in sort of one of the thumbnails to the to the videos on Tifo IRL, I did see you wearing sort of a very very artsy Marcelo Bielsa t shirt. I just need to know where where on earth you could have possibly got that from. That was from eBay. Um, really, there there is a company, uh, and I can't remember what they're called. Um, but yes, it's. Uh, in fact, if you look on Twitter in, in the replies to a picture that I posted of that T-shirt, someone has found the shop and, and put a link to it. But I I used to wear a lot of football shirts, and I think the football shirts will be coming out because I have about 120, and it would be silly <laughs> not, to, not to reprise some of them. But um, I found a, a vintage uh, shop in Winchester in Hampshire, where I live, called uh, Vintage 99, and just really enjoyed the vibe of some of the t-shirts there so it's kind of I've, I've shifted slightly uh in the absence of a sort of proper presentational personality i have to make up for it with garish <laughs> t-shirts well i mean I, I think i prefer the garish t-shirts to to maybe more uh, a traditional stance but um it, we 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 discussed um, Monza on on the previous episode that we uh, that we shared uh, back in episode fifty, I believe it was, mm. uh, and that was um, that was sort of to about two thirds of the way through the Serie B season. Uh, and to anybody who listened to that and and hadn't kept up with Monza uh, in the uh, in the interim, first of all, how dare you? But um, second, <laughs> they. Um, they, they they were in the in the the Serie B playoffs. Um, they finished third behind Empoli and Salernitana, who were promoted to Serie A automatically, uh, and unfortunately had to go through the playoffs. They were defeated three two on aggregate by Cittadella. Um, and funnily enough, we discussed on that that episode that Carlos Augusto, uh, a Brazilian left back from from Corinthians, um, he he actually got two assists in that second leg where they they had to try and overturn a three goal deficit, but. Turned out that it wasn't enough. Um, Carlos Augusto getting a, a very, I think, as far as Serie B trademarks go, um, that it was a trademark cross from him and Balotelli poked in. But unfortunately, it wasn't enough in Monza. Now they, they're probably going to have to reset and, and, and go again. But um, in terms of the, the, the big news in, 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 in the, the footballing world ahead of uh, the next few weeks, it, it is, of course, the European Championships. Um, and, and Alex, everybody has a tip or a dark horse or a surprise package that, they, that they've got a vested interest in. But I just wanted to sort of pick your brain a little bit to see who, who perhaps had been 
you know, interesting you when we've seen the, the various squad announcements. Is there anybody in particular who you think that, that might might surprise a few people? Yeah, I think I think that the well, can I be really vague and go for four? Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah. So so to exceed expectations, and by that I don't mean do exceptionally well. Um, but I would definitely keep an eye on North Macedonia. Uh, and I also think Scotland have got a good chance of a good tournament. Um, I think that Scotland have enough quality players. It's great to see Billy Gilmore get some minutes uh, in the recent friendly against the Netherlands. Um, there's a press there that is is good and energetic, um, you know, with Che Adams, John McGinn. So they, they could be right. North Macedonia have got some great players. Again, a very strong left-hand side, I think. I think we'll see a lot of teams being more active in attack down the left than down the right, trying to drag players over to the right-hand side uh, or to the defence's right-hand side, leave space uh, for players to, to kind of come in on, on the opposite side of the ball um, and attack, you know, the, the penalty box. I think, you know, if you've got, if you're Scotland and you've got Tierney and Robertson, or if you're North Macedonia and you've got Alioski, if you're England and you've got Shaw or Chilwell and Mason Mount, I, I think that's going to be a thing that we see a lot of. In terms of teams that I think have a genuine chance of progressing quite a long way, by which I mean quarterfinals, semifinals, uh, Turkey and Denmark would be the two that I would look at. Um, Denmark are surprisingly high in the ELO rankings. Um, they've they've had a lot of really good results. There's a surprising, not a surprising amount of quality in that squad. I think that's pejorative, but there's there's better players in there than you kind of associate with Scandinavian teams who are often quite kind of dour and organised and tough to break down all of those cliches. And to be fair, Finland and Sweden will still definitely give you that. But Denmark have got people like Christian Eriksen, Yusuf Poulsen, um, they've got uh, Skov. Uh, so, you know, I think I think they could be right. Turkey, again, lovely team. Ozan Tufan in midfield, I think, is an absolutely class player. Um, if they start Altai in goal, I think he's someone definitely to watch out for. We've, um, In fact, he's in the, the upcoming handbook, isn't he? Um, yes, he is, yeah, yeah. Because I wrote his profile. <laughs> That's how I know. Um, so, yeah, I, I mean, I think, look, it's, it's going to still probably be a tom- tournament dominated by exactly who you would expect. Um, but I also think that all of the big teams... Um, have got weaknesses of some sort or another, possibly apart from France. So, you know, Germany still look kind of unformed. I think the fact that they've gone back to people like Müller and Hummels indicates that that Lur's attempted transition over the last couple of years hasn't really worked out. There have been some shockingly bad results, especially the 6-0 hammering by Spain. Mm. Um so, you know, the Netherlands look a bit off the pace. Spain, I think, could surprise people. I mean, they've not they've not passed a round of 16 in a major tournament since they won the Euros in 2012. And yet there's a lot of really good players in that squad. Um, and I think, you know, that front line of uh, Ferran Torres, Dani Almo and Morata is going to be dangerous to anybody if they're quite aggressive and pick Pedri in central midfield as well, you're going to have a lot of pace and a lot of penetration between the lines. So Spain could actually do really well. Um, But it's going to be great. I mean, international tournaments are, they're just fun, aren't they? They're an opportunity for people to, to actually look at players who maybe they've heard about, um, but don't get to see very often. So I don't know someone like Kulisevsky for Sweden, he's, you know, him and Isaac are going to be up front in the absence of, Ibrahimovic and and unless you're regularly watching Serie A or La Liga you're not going to know much about those players beyond they're young and they're quite good so you get three games to watch them in and that's that's really cool yeah I think that's kind of one of the things that, that everybody does like about international football is that you know it's 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 essentially where you discover um players that you then gain a vested interest in um from from seeing them do well at, a, at an international tournament and 
Um, I think as well with the, the possibility of having supporters in stadiums um, at, at various, at, well, some of the venues, um, I think that's that's going to add another element to it as well because I think that, I mean, that is one of the best parts about international tournaments is that, you know, a lot of the time you'll have half a stadium decked out in one colour and then half and half the stadium decked out in another. And, you know, just, you, you know, as, as, as much as, you know, patriotism can pervade into other things at times, I think that there is, you know, sometimes there is a healthy outpouring of that um, in 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 international tournaments. And one of one of the my my favourite memories um, of of that is um, when the uh, the the Irish fans they all started singing Fields of Athen Rye um, at Euro two thousand and eight, or might have been twenty twelve. Um, but they were they, they were four 0 down to Spain, final group game. They were already knocked out, and the commentators just just stopped speaking, and they just let the the Irish fans half the stadium sing and it's mm. just it's an incredible just it's incredible to watch because you just think you know this is you know this the Spanish team are just passing around the Irish they they, they know that they've only got 5 minutes to play but you know the 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 immense spirit um from from supporters the the passion is just yeah it's 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 all it's, it envelops you I think and I think that's one of the things that that as you know really really makes me look forward to these these tournaments yeah no I, I <laughs> sorry I was just I was just kind of swept away by what you were describing there. Um, it was like during uh, the last Euros, the the Icelandic clap, yeah, that that sped up, and obviously it, it kind of then became a thing that people were borrowing and stuff, and and maybe lost a little of its luster. But the first time I heard it, I was I was freelancing for a really great company called Livewire at the time. Um, uh, they're based down in West London, and. They do a lot of social media content for for other people, for kind of you know um, rights holders or or the competitions themselves. Um, and I watched all the games of that that Euros, and the first time I heard the Iceland clap, I was like, "What is going on here? <laughs> this this is kind of terrifying." Um, so yeah, no, I, I I know exactly what you mean. Um, it's it's just great. It's it's just and after the year that everyone's had, I absolutely granted a lot of people aren't interested in football yeah and this summer will mean absolutely nothing to them um but for those of us who do like football and have gone through a you know a difficult period and then also not been able to go and watch our teams in person and so on this i hope will will kind of energize people and and uh, you know create a, a real air of positivity around stuff which will be great Precisely. That was kind of our, our, our little segue there, a little brief uh, love letter to the European Championships and to, to international football, which sometimes get a little bit of, gets a little bit of bad rep, I think. But um, on to today's topic, and, and that is FC Sochaux Montbéliard, uh, better known as Sochaux. Sochaux are, are a team who play in, in Ligue 2, in the French second tier. Um, the, the background to this club is, you know, they were founded by Jean-Pierre Peugeot uh, of the car. Um, they, they won two Ligue 1 titles, but a very long time ago. Um, but they recently won that. Well, in in terms of their major honors, recently won the Coupe de France. Um, most recently in two thousand and seven, um, but last played in Liga in two thousand and fourteen. Um, but they're a club who are renowned as you know having one of France's best and most prolific academies. Hence, why we're, we're discussing Sochaux on on the Scouted Football Podcast. Um, but they're not only having sort of a few interesting under 23 players at present that we're going to get onto at some point. Um, it's the the fruits of that academy, which has been um, quite interesting to us um, at Scouted, as well as the the, the scouting that they, Sochaux, have done themselves to bring in players from Ile, the Ile-de-France region um, to, to Sochaux um, to then, you know, put blood them into the first team and pl- play them up through the under-19s and then into the first team and then to, to be farmed out elsewhere. Um, Alex, you've got a bit of a, a bit of an affinity with Sochaux. Uh, I remember you, or I recall you saying um, saying so on the uh, the Tifo podcast not so long ago. Um, what is how did that come about? What was the uh, what was the, the or, what's your origin story of the uh, of the Sochaux love? Uh, it's football manager. Um, <laughs> it's it's not so. So I've always liked um, teams of this ilk, um, which I guess is unsurprising given that I like scouted football and I do a video series called Sensible Transfers you know the idea of clubs with an emphasis on the academy on it with an emphasis on youth development um, astute acquisitions that's that's just my thing and and Sosho this is going back to sort of 2000 2001 um, 
I mean, Sasha have had a great academy since they set it up in the 70s. Um, so this is not a new thing. But that particular generation had people like Benoit Pedretti, Kamal Meriem, uh, Pierre-Alain Frau coming through. And and I just I decided that I would play them on Football Manager. And it was great. Um, very, very kind of classic, orthodox 4-4-2. Uh, did quite well in the first season, then went and bought all of the decent Nantes players um, because they were really strong at that point as well. And uh, yeah, just had a kind of fairly sustained period of success. But but they, I think the thing with um, with that sort of, I, I, I don't know, it's one of the reasons that I find French football interesting is that you can see, it's not just that the academies are good um, and that obviously the scouting is good. It's that, these clubs are not afraid to put these players into first team positions, mm. that there's a realization that uh, unlike some clubs, and I would say Manchester City maybe are an example of this, where you buy up good young players, but then you just farm them out and they're sitting on your books, but they're on loan somewhere else. Because of the financial necessities of, of being particularly a Ligue 2 side, but also a Ligue 1 side, uh, sometimes these players get minutes. You know, they're they're out there and they're they're showing what they can do. And from a developmental perspective, there is not going to be anything more helpful than getting first team minutes in a competitive league, um, particularly if you're in that sort of up to 21, 22 age bracket. Um, and so I think you see not just a, a skill in finding and producing players when they're in those early stages, you know, sort of 14 to 16 phase, but you can then see the trajectory of that player as they start getting first team minutes. And then as they move on often to, to a much bigger club and Sosho seem to have had that pretty nailed down for a while now. Yeah. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll get onto the sort of the list of alumni um, that, that Sosho can boast, um, but currently the, in the present day, um, they finished seventh in Ligue 2 uh, this season, which I suppose is not a bad, not a bad finish. And um, they've, they've kind of middled around uh, mid table uh, for, for quite a few seasons since their relegation from Liga. Um, and they're owned by a, a Chinese real estate group, Nenking, um, who have who have sort of fingers in other pies, sort of in basketball and esports. Um, but their manager is is Omar Daff, who is uh, who, who was a part of the, the Senegal squad in uh, the, the 2002 World Cup in Korea, Japan, um, and obviously famously that Senegal team who, that beat France, uh, and a lot of those players who were playing in the Senegalese team were playing French football. Um, I don't, I I can't say that I know very much about Omar Daff, um, apart from that he's the current manager of Sosho uh, and, and seems to be doing quite well with the, with the young players there. Um, I mean, what's your, Alex, what's your experience of, of Omar Daff? Omar Daff was the centre-back in that uh, football manager side. Oh, right. Um, okay. <laughs> so, so one of the things that's really interesting about Sosho is um, Daff played for them uh, like almost 200 times. Um, they have a really strong tradition of bringing back people who have been involved with the club as a player to work in the club hierarchy. So Eric Helle, who was the uh, basically the academy manager from a footballing perspective rather than a sporting director kind of perspective, he started his professional career at Sosho. Uh, you've got people like um, Bernard uh, Genjini, I'm not sure how you pronounce it, um, who was, uh, was he a French? Inter yeah, no, he's a French international. Uh, and he was a sporting director at Sochaux for quite a long time. Again, started his career there, made over 200 appearances. So I think, and, and this is going back to the mid 70s, by the way, when Sochaux set their academy up and had people like Joel Batts coming through it. Um, they clearly understand the importance of bringing in people at a managerial or sporting director level who have an association with the club since that kind of mid seventies period when the academy was founded and started to be really important because they know that if a player's come through that system, they understand why Sosho need to do stuff the way they do. And I think that's a really, really good indicator of an overarching philosophy that has, uh, I don't want to say survived because that's a bit apocalyptic, but that has continued despite changes in ownership. 
I think that's a reasonable way of putting it. Um, I've watched a bit of Sosho um, on and off. I mean, League 2 is not the easiest league to get hold of to watch in England, but um, they are, yeah, they seem okay. I mean, it's a bit messy sometimes um, the way they play. They're they're quite a transition-based team. They they do press energetically at the front, um, and one of the players that we're going to talk about later is is definitely useful for that. Um, you can see that they're a team that are not necessarily massively confident in the style of football that they're playing currently, um, and they do get exposed at the back quite a bit. Transitions, they're not amazingly good at defending transitions. Um and also they, they they need more quality in that squad. I mean, if you look at if you look at all of the sort of attacking and creative metrics in League Dirt, then you know, there aren't really Sosho players that are, are sticking out as being towards the top of that league in expected goals, expected assists, progressive passes, that kind of stuff. You know, it's 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 dominated by the bigger teams in that league that that you would expect. But uh, yeah, he's doing he's doing all right, but I think more importantly, he gets it. You know, he gets the mm. Sosho mentality. He understands that there is not a pressure, but there is a there is a rationale and a justification for giving minutes to young players, to bringing them through, to to kind of embracing the importance of the academy to how Sosho construct their first team. And I think if you if you bring a player back who has had that experience um, or has been around that experience and benefited from it, I think you're much more likely to see it successful. Yeah, sort of a, as a way of understanding the the culture of the club that has that has you know lived out throughout the the ages. Completely, yeah, um, absolutely. That's... You, you're you're more likely to get somebody who isn't going to come in and you know perhaps with some things even even well intentioned different ideas, but those which may be at, at odds with the. The, the philosophy of the club or the philosophy of, you know, perhaps giving minutes to young players. And we have seen that this season. Um, I mean, the the likes of Alan Virginius, um, who's a 2003-born winger, um, mm. can play on either side. He's been given, I think, 15 or 16 games, but predominantly off the bench. Um, and, you know, has... I mean, it was interesting that you said that, you know, they're very much a team who play in transition because, you know, that is... Especially with young players sometimes who've got a, a skill set like Virginius's, um, you know, they they do look a lot better um, at the right at the, the sort of the genesis of their professional career if they're playing in a team which complements their their natural ability, um, and we'll get on to him. But I mean, just touching on what you said about their their academy and how it's been, you know, uh, one of the, one of the best since its since its establishment in in the nineteen seventies. Um, they they've typically done quite well in the Coupe Gambardella, which is an under nineteen tournament. Um, so this is you know obviously before you're even getting to the first team level. Um, they've won that three times. They've they've been runners up twice. So. In terms of you know, while they don't have the riches that other French clubs may have, and the the ability to pump money into uh, into the youth system, they still do all right. And I think that's one of the most important things is that throughout, as you said, you know, throughout the the the, the life the lifespan of of this club, you know, they constantly have had a steady stream. And I think that you know, while seventh is fine, uh, the football can be, maybe be a bit messy, as you say. I think you can say that, you know, as a manager, it's at Sochaux, perhaps not always a results business um, because, you know, he's it's, he's he's been essentially the, the, the latest custodian for, for the culture of the club. I, I think that's a really nice way of putting it, because I think if you're, you know, if you're looking at French football has definitely had a, a strong tradition of emphasis on youth development. And, you know, this is something going back to the establishment of Claire Fontaine and, you know, this really clear sense that if you invest in younger players and, and a kind of a, a holistic approach to developing them as well. And it's, you know, we've seen places like Germany kind of catch up with this slowly, but France really set the pace with it. Um, Gerard Ullier particularly was very important in that. And, and you know, you, you're therefore in an environment where, Lots of French clubs are trying to do the same thing. Um, and of course, you know, some of the best academies are obviously going to be places like Lyon, PSG, you know, clubs with lots and lots of money because they can put lots of money into their academy as well as into their first team and into their training facilities and so on. So if you're if you're a socio that is 
never ever going to compete financially with mm. clubs of that ilk then having somebody who who has the i suppose the strength of character and the understanding of culture to be able to say you know no the the, the way that we're going to progress as a club and actually let's be brutally honest possibly even survive as a club mm. is is to focus on that culture that that you know dropping even 10 million euro on three or four players in an effort to try and buy promotion from League Dirt is very, very unlikely to happen. What's much more likely is that there will be two or three players in a youth crop that are sufficiently talented to propel Sosho up the table at a certain point. But if they can basically tread water in, in League Dirt, they keep producing some players that are good enough to sell on uh, and keep their revenues up that way, then at some juncture, then they will have a chance of getting back into Liga, and that's where the, the financial stuff maybe starts to to come back to them. But it's 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 about resisting the kind of boom and bust urge to. Well, we were, you know, I think they were the third longest running Liga club or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, they they like a really storied club in in those terms, and it. If you're an owner of a club like that, then maybe the temptation is to, you know, this is our rightful place in Liga, and we're going to spend, spend, spend in order to get there. And that just would not work. That wouldn't work from a club culture perspective. I don't think the fans would appreciate it. And I also don't think that it's a sustainable model, particularly in France, where there's obviously so much financial instability at the moment. So what they're doing is by far and away the most sensible thing. Um, and having managers that get that and, like you say, act as a custodian of that is that's the that's the correct appointment, even if the football's not always amazing. Hmm. Absolutely, and I think the financial aspect is something we'll we'll get onto um, in terms of the the alumni at Sochaux because um, one of the things that is that, that stuck out to me straight away was first of all the names, the names mm. of players that have played for this club, and I'm not talking years ago, I'm not talking decades ago, I'm talking in very very recent recent history, um, and I'll just rattle off a few. Ibrahima Konate, I think I don't think there's a better time to be recording the Sochaux podcast considering he has literally just signed for Liverpool from RB Leipzig, but he was um, at Sochaux between the ages of 15 and 18. Uh, Marcus Turam was at Sochaux between the ages of 15 and 20. Um, Maxence Lacroix, again, ages 15 to 20, he was at Sochaux. Uh, and even you know Cedric Bakambu, who was obviously so good at, at Villarreal and, and, and elsewhere, um, he was he was there for eight years between the age of 15 and 23. Uh, and that's even without getting into the Jeremy Menez, Ryan Boudabouz, um, Lucien Agume, who is now at Inter, Inter Milan, um, uh, Mevla Erding, that's a throwback. I mean, I remember seeing Mevla Erdink linked to God knows how many English clubs about a decade or so ago. Um, mm. But Jeremy Mathieu, El Hadjouf, you know, there are so many names there that even if you just have a, a passing interest in French football, that you will, you'll immediately recognise there. Um, and I think it, it, it speaks to the conversation we've just had about, you know, that the, the custodians, the culture, the youth, you know, the the the, the history of, of producing these players and, and providing... Um, a, a good platform for them. Um, and I think the important thing in, in this is that a lot of these players are joining at age 15. Uh, and the, this appears to be something which has been a targeted thing. Um, Ibrahim Konati was, was was Paris born. He arrived at Sochaux, which is just very close, uh, in terms of geographically, very close to the Swiss border, for anybody who, who doesn't know. Um, Marcus Turam, obviously he will have moved around quite a bit in his youth, um, but um, due to his father Lillian, um, of course, the French international. Um, but uh, around the time that of his sort of mid-teenage years, was playing for for teams in Paris. Um, Maxence Lacroix was Paris-born and then ended up playing elsewhere. Um, but uh, he was, I think, before he signed for Sochaux, he's playing for Trelissac, which is a club which is closer to Bordeaux, so on you know the opposite side of France. Mm. Um, you know, all these players were were scouted and brought to the club um, at, at at a point where they were not going to be playing first team football for at least two or three years. And yet they were identified as being these, these immensely talented players. And as they've shown, they've gone on to be very good players. I mean, Ibrahim Konate moving to, to, to Liverpool. I mean, that's an endorsement in itself. Marcus Turam, French international in his own right now. Uh, Maxence Lacroix has you know done fantastically with Wolfsburg this season uh, in the Bundesliga, qualifying for the Champions League, making that step from Ligue 2 to the Bundesliga in a single year. Um, 
you know, there are, I, th- I think in terms of the, my first question is the financials because Konate was a free transfer to Leipzig. So you don't really get anything from, from that unless you've got a sell-on clause and God, I hope the sell-on clauses. Um, <laughs> Mar- Marcus Turan was sold for, for half a million euros to, to Gangon. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Maxence Lacroix was sold for four and a half million to, to Wolfsburg. So that's obviously a much better deal than the other two. But, you know, to be getting five million from those three players is kind of a... I know I know that the money will always be scaled down because it's Ligue 2 and you can't obviously demand as much. But to me, it just seems like a such a missed opportunity there. Like, for example, you know, we've seen... And I know that the financials we're talking about are completely different in the English game. But you look at... You know, teams like Brentford, who for so many years didn't get promoted, but they were constantly sort of, you know, selling players for two and three and four and five million. And gradually they got up to being able to sell the likes of Saeed Benrama and, and Ollie Watkins for 20, 30 million. You know, it, it, it makes me think like if there is that much money at the top of the game and these players are heading to the top of the game, as Konate, Turam, Lacroix have proven, could, could Sochar have, have perhaps. I mean, could they have got a little bit more? So I guess there's two points to consider here. Um, the first is is the the disparity between the first and second tiers in France versus, for example, the first and second tiers in England. Mm. You know, you you could buy a French Ligue 2 side, and I'm talking about buying the club here <laughs> yeah. for for you know, between 10 and 15 million euro in some instances. I think Toulouse were available for about 12 million last year. That's like so when I'll Manchester City bought uh, Estac, uh, was it Troy? Uh, yeah. When, yeah. And that was, I mean, I remember seeing that reported and thinking, God, that's a bit cheap. Right. For, for an entire club, yeah. So, you know, Man City can, can buy a football club for a third or a quarter of what they would spend on a left-back, kind of casually, because they're Man City. They love mm. buying left-backs. Um so, yes, you would hope that Sosho would would get more for some of these players, and and maybe like you say, they they kind of front load the deal in reverse. That's a terrible way of putting it, but they, they you know they they let them go for half a million, but it's only half a million because the sell on fee is ten percent or fifteen percent mm-hmm. rather than two and a half percent, something like that. And obviously, we don't know about that kind of stuff. But it's also because I think that the running costs for these professional teams are significantly lower. Mm. You know, if you're signing these players in many instances for probably their first professional contract um, and going back, I mean, absolutely, definitely until the sort of the mid 2010s, Sosho was was one of the places to go and, and play as an academy player. Um, I think in in 2013 it was rated the best academy in France of any you know academy in France, and that's that's really really saying something. So you know a lot of these players are coming in, and yes, obviously you want to look at at the kind of um, the, the the amount that you're making from selling them, but the cost of producing them is also relatively minimal. So you're you're looking at significant amounts of of profit because once once the the infrastructure of of youth scouting and the academy is present, then really a lot of what you're looking at is wages. And if you're signing someone like that, you know, here's your first professional terms. It's going to be a couple hundred quid a week or whatever. That's you, so you're you're making money basically, irrespective. Uh, I also think though that there's something here about the ecosystem of football generally, which is really interesting. So. You know, Canate to Liverpool is a good example. So his his path is from a team that specialise in finding 15, 16 year olds who are going to be really good. Uh, he then goes to a club that are very, very good at scouting and developing players that fit within a particular system. And he then moves from them to a club who are famed for kind of setting up the first really strong data driven transfer unit in English football. You know that the, there will always be predators within this system, and there will always be clubs who can stick an extra amount of money into data or an extra amount of money into scouting or what have you. And and an academy football and youth scouting was probably one of the 
only areas where poorer clubs could get a jump on the bigger clubs just because they could put the effort in because they had to, whereas the bigger clubs could go, well, we don't really have to care because we can just drop 10, 15 million on a player. Mm-hmm. As as a lot of football teams, by no means all, but as a lot of football teams get smarter, I worry that this sort of business model, it, it, it's not that it won't work, but the bigger clubs are getting smarter. They're spotting these talents earlier. They can kind of exploit the hard work of a Sosho, for example, that little bit easier than maybe they could do before. Um, and so I'm not going to say that that it's going to be massively damaging. And I don't think we'll necessarily get to the stage where big football teams are just buying like satellite teams across the board. You know, obviously you've got the Manchester City model and so on and the, the, the Leipzig model, but I, I don't, you know, I don't think Manchester United are going to buy Sosho and basically functionally use it as an academy but it also does mean that it's going to be harder for them to extract maximum value for the players that they're producing because other teams are going to spot them a year or two earlier than they would have done five ten years ago Mm. i think the image i'm getting there essentially is the food chain eating itself yeah exactly that Yeah. yeah it's you know the bigger clubs are taking two bites instead of just the one now rather yes. than well they're, um, they're, they're an apex predator and they're evolving you know yeah, they're, they're yeah. getting smarter they're they're getting richer and so they can afford to put more money into things they're recognizing the the value in doing this stuff and this is why clubs like i don't know mainz is a good example so mainz punch above their weight financially in the bundesliga in part because they are really, really good at scouting lower league French teams and a little bit in Switzerland as well, actually. Um, and Sosho is quite near Switzerland, so there's a, there's a bit of an overlap there. But they, they, that's where they'll pick up the players that are 22, 23, who have clearly shown enough and they can take a bit of a gamble on them. And if they work out well, they can sell them on. And again, everybody's wising up to this now almost everybody um the and and bigger clubs can simply do it better and i think you can you look at particularly lyon and psg their academies i mean they utilize them in different ways but they have phenomenal catchment areas and they they can drop five million on an academy without blinking in a way that a lot of these other french clubs simply can't do so in that arms race they're always going to you know there's always going to be an advantage and the only thing that that a club like Sosho can do is focus on you know getting the players that slip through the net mm-hmm. but are going to be good anyway um and and that you know people like Maxence Lacroix are a really good example of that um so yeah i it, it's not necessarily bleak but i think it's harder yeah, it's more difficult, and then essentially that that makes way for just these clubs having to be more creative. Um, and you know the the and I think the nature of this business is that there always will be players who slip through the cracks. You know, I, yes. I was I was reading a thread on Twitter the other day where it was um, pretty much half the Manchester City team were were all hailed as late developers at some point, and you're always going to get scouts who their eyes are ordinarily always going to be drawn to the to the, the physical to the physically standout players especially at a younger younger age range mm. um so the ones who perhaps develop later um are those ones who might slip through the net and there might be a market for that in in a sense in the future um but speaking of sort of the the, the players at Sochaux and having to scout um you know creatively and diligently and you know going into different catchment areas um i think it's probably probably best that we we discuss some of the the, the young players that are at Sochaux now um and uh, the funnily, just before we we started recording, um, sort of on the on the one sheet that, that Alex and myself have, um, we 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 listed uh, Brian Lasme, who is a twenty two year old winger uh, or wide forward. I think it's probably a better way to describe him. Um, and and I wrote he's he's six foot four inches tall. I'm interested um, because. Typically, you don't get wingers who are that tall unless you're playing in Pellegrino Matarazzo's Stuttgart team and you're Silas Wamangi Tukarov, for example. Um, he is a very, very interesting player to watch. Um, Alex, I'm going to let you let you have the floor for this one to begin with because um, you said as well, you, you kind of picked him out and went, well, I, I'm also interested. Um, so the floor is yours. Yeah, so he, he's... Uh 
can we just pause also and just say Silas Wamangatuka is a beautiful player to oh, watch. Excellent, yeah. I absolutely love him, and I'm doing a, a Stuttgart save on uh, oh, on the brilliant. Athletic, where uh, Ian McIntosh and I are fighting it out, and I'm Stuttgart and he's Schalke. And, uh, <laughs> God, I love Stuttgart. I just there's so much going on with that team that's awesome. Uh, anyway, that digression aside. Um, so yeah, Lasme is he's really interesting. He's he's a good and assiduous presser. Um, he makes a like a surprising number of ball recoveries for a wide forward. Um, he likes to start wide, and that can be on the right hand side or the left hand side. And he takes up these weirdly flexible positions. So sometimes. If they're building out from the back, um, Maxence Prévost, the goalkeeper, who is also um, a, an academy graduate, actually, and would be a very, very solid kind of number two for a Premier League side. I'm not not sure he's quite good enough to be a top-level goalkeeper, but he doesn't make very many mistakes um, and looks pretty solid. Um, so he'll hit it long, and, and Lasme is almost used as what, again, in football manager terms, you'd call a, a wide target man. Um, so he's there to contest aerial balls, overman the fullback, obviously, because most fullbacks are shorter than six foot four. Uh, and then there'll be Sosho players pushing up from midfield to, to try and win that second ball. But also he will start wide and then cut in field, but he'll cut in field in a way that is not like your kind of iron robin, I'm in possession and I'm I'm cutting a sort of slight arc to open up a shooting opportunity. He will he will just run directly into the centre forward position, um, mm-hmm. where the right back then overlaps massively, um, and it sort of creates this very very tilty look. Um, this this is something he particularly does on on the right hand side. On the left hand side, when he cuts in, it is more in a kind of classic inverted winger way. But he's got tremendous. I don't want to say he's got tremendous pace, but his legs eat the ground up. You know, mm-hmm. he um, and he has surprisingly astute positional sense in the box for for this kind of gangly pace, tall, driven style of player. Like his, you can see when when the ball's out wide, for example, and he's in the centre forward position, he's he's making subtle adjustments to stay on side or he's suddenly accelerating to get onto a, a cross that comes deeper than everyone's expecting it to. So I think he probably ends up as a center forward mm-hmm. uh, actually. Um, but he's, yeah, like you say, what's interesting is that he has this weird accumulation of skills and, and physical characteristics, which you don't expect to see in a player who is mostly playing as a right or a left winger. Um, it, it's quite odd, including this ability. To, like he tackles like a leggy central midfielder, which again <laughs> really surprised me. It's um, yeah, no, he's fun. Like he's, but it, but what do you do with a player like that? That's the weird thing. Is you know where do you where do you put him? How do you use him eventually? Yeah, I mean it, it is a weird amalgamation of skills, as you say. It's a, it's a very very unique skill set because. I, I like what you said about his how he it's it's not like an eye and Robin type run. It's a it's a lot more severe than that, isn't it? Mm, it's very yeah. much a, a a beeline straight for straight for the centre forward position. And the thing that I quite like about just the sort of the, the clips that I was watching of him is that whenever he does get in those positions, it's almost as though the rest of the team vacates that space for him because they know yes. how effective he can be in that area. And um, and the right back's movement, or sometimes even the right central midfielder's movement to fill where he was is automatic mm-hmm. and it seems like it's very much a a specific set of movements that occur when the ball is in a certain area and he's able to do that the rest of the team fills in around him and I, and I do think that the ability to make those runs and you know because he can like he can cross the ball he can beat players dribbling so he you can understand why he's a winger but this is why I think the combat almost if you played him as like a a second striker like a tall second striker who can win the ball in the air but then just surges past people 
But once he surged past people, has the positional astuteness to check that run mm-hmm. and to work out where he is in relation to everybody else. Because he doesn't just put his head down and go for it. Like there is a subtlety there once he's in the box. Um, so I don't. I, that's why I think maybe he ends up as a centre forward. Uh, but but I don't know. <laughs> I really don't know. <laughs> it is, it's such a perplexing one because obviously not watching it every week. It, it when you do sort of watch it through that lens and you're specifically looking for what what he does in that final third, which is good. Mm. You kind of you see. I mean, I'll, I'll be perfectly honest. You see, there's a little bit of clunky, unrefined dribbling at times. Yeah. Um, and sometimes he does telegraph his body movements a, a little bit. I think. But I think when you are you're six foot four and you're, you're you're cutting inside and you know opposition teams will have done their analysis. You know exactly what he's going to do. Then there is an element of you know I I know how to stop this if I can get the the jump on you if I can get the run on you. Um, I I I, I can see why he would be a, a good sort of second striker. Um, but as as you're saying because obviously he has that that presence. Um, but I, I quite like how I know why he's playing wide as well because he's yeah he's good with his feet and and you know particularly if he's going to get that that run once he's past you he's past you essentially like, yeah you know, you, absolutely yeah it, and, and and the recovery in the wide areas I mean one of the things that did impress me about Sasho um, and this is this is based off watching Lasme but also Virginius is they they do they do press aggressively out wide and they target the opposition fullbacks with their press. But if they get beaten, they actually manage to fall back into a defensive shape quite quickly. Um, and I think that the the pace of those wide players and someone like Lasme who's able to do that and occasionally also make a really decent recovery tackle is one of the reasons why they are able to play quite an aggressive press in the wide areas. And again, that's the sort of... I mean, that is a bit of a... Wamengatuka skill set thing, isn't it? Because mm-hmm. he, I mean, he sort of plays as this weird hybrid, kind of a wing back, kind of a winger role that that that's again extremely difficult to understand. And and sometimes when you have when you have players that are that are, I don't want to say odd, <laughs> unorthodox. That's a better way. Yeah, yeah, tactically grey. Yeah, yeah. That that actually kind of embrace it like go with it and think I don't want to I think the instinct even with me is is to kind of think okay well he needs to put all his eggs in one basket he needs to become an X, you know mm-hmm. a striker of this persuasion a wide player of that persuasion a you know sort of a, a Mandzukic who is a striker but lingers in the wide areas to win aerial balls and then bursts in I can mm-hmm. see him doing that actually um but maybe the thing to do is to just kind of go, no, he's he's the chaos element. He's the bit where the rest of the team does kind of function around him a little bit and, and makes their movements based on where he's just been or where he's going. And and because he is difficult to stop and because he has that really interesting positional sense, you know, that that's what makes the team good, that he's not trying to be a specific type of footballer. He's doing what feels right at the time and and is harder to stop because of it. Yeah, I think probably to sum up, Brian Lasme is is a player who you couldn't easily put into a certain box in terms of on, on the football pitch, in terms of positioning. Um, he's, I think you'd need a really large box. Well, yeah, for starters, you yeah, you would. <laughs> and also, I would not, I would not be trying to put him into that box myself. I'd need a hand um, yes. because he is because he is a handful. But um, to to sum up, you know, he scored nine goals. I think three of those were penalties in around 1,700, 1,800 league term minutes this season, um, which was, I think, might have made them made him their top scorer if then it wasn't or a striker who got ten, I believe. Yeah, but he's also, I think, he's. He's leagued a top twenty-five for expected goals and expected assists per ninety. Ah, right. Okay, I did not see that. I didn't. I mean, I didn't have access to that for starters. But um, it's good to good to know that that, that I, feel, I feel a little bit validated now. Yeah. 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 No, I. I mean, he's he's fun. Yeah, definitely. Um, speaking of obviously wingers uh, and uh, or what rather wide forwards and and Sosho and, and young players, and that segues very nicely into to, into the next player that we'll discuss, and that's Alan Virginius, who we have touched on a little bit beforehand. Um, but you know, on on the crib sheet that I've got here, I listed him as two thousand and three born right footed left winger, and then I started watching him, and it was a case of well, he's 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 just a 
he's a winger who plays on both sides and yeah. he's he yeah he you know he's decent with both feet but he's predominantly right-footed um but yeah he he does use predominantly off the bench um but um sort of with enough regularity to, to suggest that in the next few seasons if not next season then definitely the season afterwards you know he's he's essentially being groomed for a greater role um but potentially in the event that somebody like uh, Lazmir would would move on because you know there's there's a lot of i think you'll probably agree with me on, on this one Alex but there's a lot of growing room i think for, for for Virginius because at the moment he is very much an 18 year old playing professional football he's rangy but he's not physical as yet um he's he can be a little bit naive when it comes to to come to um, retrieving the ball with his pressure gives away quite a few fouls in in areas Mm. where you know a a stickler or a footballing traditionalist might say well that's not a foul but as soon as you feel the contact as a defender in a difficult situation you're going to go down um but with virginius i I like him because he, he does have that just that that little spark that when you watch it you go yeah he's got it um the the cute little touches around the corner uh, yeah. a little bit past an opponent um you know if they if 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 they're going to commit and try to tackle him then he has he already has the know-how to beat a a, a player in that position um but as i say very rangy but a little bit lightweight um, which is to be expected given his age um but definitely um definitely some growing room especially in sort of a technical sense you know he can knock that ball around the corner and you know be a real a real threat over the top which i think shows the the tactical flexibility for Sochaux because you know if virginius is coming on on the right in place of Blasme, then they're not going to be pumping balls into virginius's chest they're going to be playing them over the top and he does have that 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 acceleration to get to get around the defender yeah um, i think he I, I i really like him as an orthodox right winger mm. um and you're absolutely right about the the physicality and and some of the naivety in defending and i do think that that's a system thing that's mm. he's he's being encouraged to press and tackle back like the other Sosho wide players and he's just a bit you know occasionally uh too enthusiastic um and and yeah there's you know in, in a league like leader there's always going to be for every 18 year old whippet coming on there's also a 35 year old fullback yeah. who's been doing it in his sleep for the last 20 years and we you know we'll know exactly when to go down and stuff um but he he I, what i like about him particularly is the way that he stands up crosses from the right hand side where he will he'll use the acceleration to, to beat a player and then the ball that comes in is he doesn't like cut it back low along the ground a huge amount or it's not like that's his go-to thing you know like a lot of wide players that are really kind of almost attacking midfielders but that end up in a wide area because that's where they're needed they they pull the ball back across the ground an awful lot whereas he will clip across in aerially often and really well at pace. And there is something slightly um, kind of old school about the way he crosses the ball that does make me think of him as like an orthodox. I mean, if he, if he got a bit more uh, strength about him, he would be a fantastic right winger in a classic 4-4-2 mm-hmm. um, because he's got what you want. He can beat a player, he can cross the ball at pace, uh, he can add a bit of curve to it, and he can also, like I say, stand it up. So he's not overhitting the cross; he's kind of chipping it in, but he's doing it while he's moving. Um, and it's not, it's nice to see crossing like that. It's he almost crosses more like you'd expect a fullback to cross mm-hmm. than a winger, if that makes sense. Yeah, from those positions, which are typically where you know you're playing quite you, you know you've, you've been quite aggressive in your attacking transition you've got quite a few bodies into that final third mm. and then the ball is then recycled to the fullback and he then sort of crosses from it, it feels like a deep cross because of the way that it is played in if that makes sense yeah in terms of it's it's the 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 outswinging cross sort of yeah. towards the towards the penalty spot and I, I know i know where you're getting at um i think it's he's definitely a player who at, at present is better on and sort of if you if you were to split up the pitch into the five five channels you know the two wings the the two half spaces in the center of the pitch i think he's definitely a player who's by far the strongest on that in, in you know in the two peripheral the the wing sections completely um, yeah is i think w- when it comes to sort of the in in the half spaces you know he can maybe beat a man and then 
you know, his, his pass to his teammate will just be, it might be a little bit behind his teammates and it might still get there, but it's very much a, I need to make this pass because I've already done too much. Uh, on, I need to, you know, I need to get this ball off me and it's kind of a little bit underneath him. And um, th- there was a little bit of that when, when I was watching him. I thought, well, that's fine. He's 18. Like he's, this is his, effectively his first real glimpse of, of senior football. He only played around 500 minutes. Um, so I think in terms of the the final ball, the, the passing not being too crisp yet, I think that's that's fine. I'm not fussed about that because he's showing he's showing for it in these dangerous spaces. He's mm. showing that he can get into them for starters and then you can actually deliver something as you've been as you've been saying so that wouldn't worry me too much um, at this point um and and as i say you know he's definitely got that he's got a frame which can definitely be bulked up a little bit i think similar to on the opposite side of the pitch um if we're going to categorize him as a as a right winger um similar to how Cody Hakpo at PSV has basically you know gone from being a bit of a spindly sort of wide forward and now has really filled out and actually looks really formidable, um, especially against lesser opposition. So I think there's there's definitely, um, there's definitely I, I keep saying it, but there is, there's growing room for, for young Alan Virginius. Um, I, I don't know if you want to add, add anything final just to to, to, to the chat on, on Sochal's young players, Alex. Um, no, just that you, you highlighted Sammy Farage. Um, oh yes, and, of course, yeah. Uh, and, and I, as you've helpfully put, a 19-year-old Algerian under-20 international just signed his first professional contract until 2024. He, I mean, I, I looked for, I looked for him. Um, Any minutes at all? Yeah, I managed to watch a few things he did against Rode, um, but they're, they're, it's it's impossible to tell off of that few clips. But oh, again, yeah. there's there's always one or two things that you that you might notice, you know, where I think there was a bit where he, he miscontrolled something. He was trying to, the ball was coming back to him and he kind of shanked it slightly, but then he straight away was, was making a recovery, managed to get his body between the ball and the opposition player and then sort of shielded it out. There's, there's an awareness there, um, which I think is interesting. He took a shot on, which was a bad shot, but he <laughs> wasn't afraid to have a go with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's. I, I guess this is always the difficult thing, isn't it? You you want to see way way more of these players um, before you make any kind of judgment on them. But at the same time, there's a degree of confidence. I think if a player, if a player of that age is getting even a little bit of time or being given a long contract at a club like Sosho, they're worth keeping an eye on next season. You know, you, I think it's fair to say that, even if you've basically not seen anything of them, because that's... I, I have faith in Sosho. Somebody has seen enough of them to, to yeah, work exactly. that decision. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Probably somebody who's more qualified than we are. <laughs> Shocking as that might be. Um, but yeah, I think I think Sasha will be an interesting watch next season. If particularly if if a couple of these guys are getting more minutes than they're currently getting, mm, absolutely. And I just want to make one final point on on Alan Virginius, uh, and that is that he was signed from Paris FC's youth setup uh, at age you guessed it fifteen, very much like uh, the uh, the likes of Konate, Max Turam, Maxence Lacroix. Did did Silas come from Paris FC? Yes, he did. Yeah, yes, there's, did. there's another link there as well. Yeah, yeah. He, he went to to Stuttgart from Paris, didn't he? Um, yeah, I thought so. So yeah, there's uh, honestly we, we there there are multiple episodes that we can do on the Ile de France diaspora uh, oh, and just honestly, the fact that there it's are just, like the motherload. Yeah. That, area it's incredible if i'm if i'm a if i'm a scout for a, for any club at any level uh, i'm i'm just i'm ca- i'm camping myself in paris and just going to work as many games as i possibly can because it sounds just, terrible doesn't it what no, an awful life to god, lead yeah <laughs> sitting in all those cafes just you know on y scout and insta god it would just be terrible I'd hate it. I'd nobody hate fund it. me to do that please, please. god <laughs> oh it would be it would be blissful, wouldn't it? Anyway, I think that is probably a good uh, a good point to to end this episode on. Um, thank you very much for tuning in. Anybody who has has listened to this, I hope that um, you've you've learned a little bit more about Sushawa. I know I certainly have, uh, and and hopefully that you know maybe one or two of you will maybe maybe keep a, a keen eye on on that that French club near the Swiss border uh, in Ligue 2, and um, hopefully we'll be uh, see, hearing and seeing more of Brian Lasmin, Alan Virginius, and. 
hopefully we'll see some of Sami Farage at some point um, to to see if the the 2024 contract that he's been given was was a, a fair appraisal. But thank you very much uh, to to Alex for for giving up your time on this one. It's been uh, it's been a pleasure. No, it's it always great. I, I I really enjoy, as you know, I enjoy everything that Scouted does, and it's a, it's it's fun to to come on these podcasts. And uh, I have a I have a really nice Sosho top that I use for running in. So I will be wrapping them fiercely over the summer when I go for when I go for runs to get away from the Euros every so often. <laughs> brilliant, brilliant stuff. Um, you always love to see that, you know, despite the, the 120 odd shirts that you have, you do still have one which is deeply rooted in your 2000-2001 championship manager save. Absolutely. Um, yeah, brilliant stuff. Anyway, thank you very much for tuning in. This has been the Scouted Football Podcast. Uh, I've been Joe Donoghue. Stay safe, take care, bye for now. Please leave a like and a comment and subscribe to learn more about the best young football players in the world.